Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple of pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers or leaders of any kind who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming uh, weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Larissa Levicheva. She is a colleague of mine, regular guest on the show, a professor of Bible and of uh, missiology and a whole range of other things. Uh, she's very uh, talented and, and brilliant friend and colleague, and I'm really delighted to have her on the show again this week. Um, our text is Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, I believe. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Make sure to subscribe if you are not already, so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening and enjoying the show, hit the share button and uh, pass this along privately or through social media to your friends so that others might benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Larissa. Genesis 15, excuse me, Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15, my bad. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. Would you be willing to read the passage, and then I'll say a prayer, and then we'll jump in? Sure. Okay. Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, while he sat at the entrance of his tent in the day's heat. He looked up and suddenly saw three men standing near him. As soon as he saw them, he ran from his tent entrance to greet them and bowed deeply. He said, Sirs, if you would be so kind, don't just pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought to you to wash feet and refresh yourselves under the tree. Let me offer you a little bread so you will feel stronger And after that, you may leave your servant and go on your way, since you have visited your servant. They responded, fine, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried to Sarah at his stand and said, hurry, need three seeds of finest flour and make some baked goods. Abraham ran to the cattle, took a healthy young calf and gave it to a young servant who prepared it quickly. Then Abraham took butter milk and the calf that had been prepared, put the food in front of them and stood under the tree near them as they ate. They said to him, where's your wife, Sarah? And he said, right here in the tent. Then one of the men said, I will definitely return to you about this time next year. Then your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were both very old. Sarah was no longer menstruating. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, I'm no longer able to have children, and my husband's old. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Me, give birth at my age? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
When I return to you about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah lied and said, I didn't laugh because she was frightened. But he said, no, you laughed. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, for this opportunity uh, to spend some time studying the word of God. We give you thanks for being uh, the Lord who visits his people. And we give you thanks for our father Abraham, who practiced hospitality and welcomed you into his tent. And we give you thanks most of all for the promise that you gave and that you fulfilled both immediately in the life history of Abraham and then throughout the history of the covenant of which we are partakers by grace in the name of Jesus Christ. And so uh, with thankful hearts, we ask that you would, by your spirit, guide us in our conversation, that our words would not be just mere talk, words falling to the ground, but that our words would be um, taken up by you as bearers of your word uh, for the sake of one another and for all who are listening in and those whom they uh, commune with and serve. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So uh, what's, uh, what's jumping out at you today? What's, what's grabbing your attention as you read this text afresh? You chose some R-rated text. <laughs> look at Hebrew. <clears throat> so, yeah. So you got the least R-rated one of the ones I offered you? Is that what you <laughs> No, it's a, uh, it's the um, the hard R doesn't start till after this. Right? Exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, if you if you look at Hebrew, and I, I'm sure you, you have, but when we you know get to the end of that passage, right, where uh, Sarah is kind of laughing to herself, yeah, thinking about that she's old, but where um, where it says. Uh, I'm, uh, it's a second part of verse 12. I'm no longer able to have children and my husband's old. Yeah. The that's, Hebrew, yeah. That's, <laughs> right. that's, that's not about the Hebrew. I'd say it's PG 13. I would say. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. Sarah is actually questioning uh, her husband's ability to please her. Yeah. Rather than. So uh, what's interesting is that throughout this passage, the narrator makes sure the readers know how old both Sarah and Abraham were, where it says that, you know, she, is, uh, she reached menopause and all of the menstruating. It's actually in, in Hebrew, it says that um, she was no longer as um, a woman as others, right? So she was too old. He, the way of the way of women has ceased to be with her, which right. That's another. As, yeah. That's one translation, but and right. and which could be taken in lots of ways, though. I mean, that doesn't have to just mean. I mean, it's menopausal, but it's also indicating, you know, going with that is she's not gonna, you know, uh, excite Abraham. <laughs> right. So it's yeah, yeah. They're so old, and he, you know, it, he he's also so old, right? The 
that Hebrew um, word for old repeats almost, I don't know, if not every uh, verse, but quite often. Yeah, it's a ken. So it's, uh, the, the narrator is, you know, just the, the, that's how Hebrew narratives work, right? There is a narrator who says what's happening, and then every, uh, each character kind of discovers the story for themselves. Right, okay. Right, the narrator says they were old. Now Abraham discovers that he's old, and then Sarah. So it's quite interesting that, yeah, they are old. So yeah, so that to, so that's a common Hebrew narrative pattern you're saying, right? I mean, just to, as offering advice to our listeners to say that, correct? Um, to look for what does the narrator tell you as an audience first, and then watch as each character sees what they saw. Is that right? For example, uh, if we think of uh, Moses coming down from the you know mountain, yeah. uh, and his face was shining. Mm-hmm. Right, he doesn't realize that his face is shining until he's told about it. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. So, but the narrator already told us that the face right. is shining. So it's the narrator sets it sets the stage so that we all know what's going on. But then each character acts according to what's going on. Yeah, and that's helpful. It's a helpful thing to bring up because I think as modern readers. The modern novel does not use this style. It tends to have us discover things as the character discovers it, typically, right. not always. But so it's helpful. However, as a as a modern movie watchers, films often do exactly what the Hebrew story form would do, right? right. We yeah. see it, we see it before the characters see it or say it. Right. And so I, I mentioned that just to say that it sounds like it's it's it can be helpful to have that kind of more imaginative. Uh, mind in place rather right. than your typical novel reading. If you have your novel reading brain running, you're going to miss those patterns. Cause right. once we hear it, we're like, Oh yeah, we know it. Move on. Oh, that's, that's a very helpful. That's a, that's just a really helpful uh, narrative reading tip. Yeah. Right. Because even in this story, uh, it starts by saying the Lord appeared to Abraham. Mm-hmm. So we know yeah, we already know who it is, right? <laughs> right, but Abraham has no clue, right? He does not know, most likely, until the very end, who he was dealing with, right? Yes. And it still did, does not say that he recognized who was in front of him. We know that Sarah got scared because somebody was able to read her thoughts away from her. So that was somebody quite powerful. That's why she's scared, mm-hmm. right? But we don't, the, the characters, Abraham and Sarah, do not know who they're talking to. So, and I think that's, that's the whole point, that the Lord knows everything about them. And we are together with the narrator, understand that. Mm-hmm. But the people, the main characters of the story don't know, right? So we, we, we need to remember that. I was just thinking how, how different, just to give an example, and we won't spend time on this because I think it's on the it's on the schedule later for this summer. But there's the encounter between the man and Jacob on the side of the Jabbok, right. and that you know that 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 I'm I'm recognizing all of a sudden now. Part of what makes that story stand out is it doesn't tell us up front because typically. Right. 
And, and, and I'm used to when I talk about that passage to kind of emphasize the ambiguity. I, I even tell people, scratch out Jacob wrestles with God in the heading because it just right, right. Ruins, it ruins the surprise. But you're actually helping me see that in a way that applies in all of these stories. Again, for us as reader, like the, 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 the mystery element is just as palpable here for the characters. And so if we can have our kind of visual imagination up and running – as opposed to looking and learn to retrain our brains away from certain kind of modern narrative techniques that have a lot to do with subjectivity. I mean, you know how much novels, modern novels tend to be like told from a first person perspective, you know, narrators, often a character, things like that, that are just foreign. They're just foreign techniques for the most part to, to, to Hebrew narratives. If I'm hearing you right, you know, the the typical way of doing it is this omniscient narrator with no character or personality or perspective. (laughs) <laughs> just doling out information that, that, that the narrator thinks we need. Right. Mm-hmm. But assuming that we will remember that that doesn't mean the characters know it, but it's really hard, especially for religious readers to not think, well, the right. fact is it's the Lord. So, <laughs> but you know, it, the longer I, whenever I'm in a Hebrew narrative, the longer I stay with it, the more it like comes alive visually as this encounter and all the things I think I know tend to fade <laughs> and the experience. Right. Characters comes to you the know, in the oral culture, which Hebrew was, yes. right? That visual would be well, natural. You have to tell the story in such a way that people would keep listening on one hand, but making connections on the other. Ah, right? yeah. And remember to draw a, um, you know, a life application mm-hmm. to find themselves in the story. Who do you identify with at this point or at that point? Right. So that's. And you think of a of a, of a family or a, or a, or a tribe kind of sitting around a fire, as it were, narrating a story. The visuality of the story. I mean, thinking of this as a text first will always screw me up, right? Where it's right. Whereas if I'm sitting around a room, someone's telling this story. You know, they might even gesture at an old woman in the room or an old man, right? I mean, or even if they don't, your mind does. You start. You know when you when you hear a story and you're in a circle of people, right. you tend to identify the characters as different people in that room. You your mind wants to visualize, right? Correct. Yep. It's only text reading that gets you thinking words and concepts. And it's like, oh, the Lord appeared. Check. It's the Lord. Concept locked. Right. And that's the kind of modern textual imagination. But the more visual narrative imagination. Obviously, the characters don't know it's the Lord, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. And, you know, thinking about the narrative and that it's the Lord that appeared to Abraham, we need to remember that the first, you know, few times when the Lord appeared, Abraham actually did not see the Lord. That's right, and right. Because before, you know, he would be talking to the Lord and we don't know how that It doesn't happen, say, right? yeah. And there's even a visual yeah. manifestation in the second or third encounter with the torch flying through. Right. Right. That's a kind of visual, but it's not a, it's not a face. It's not an, it's not a human, human right. to human vi- feel uh, to right. it. Right. So, oh, that helps. So you kind of get, it's like he goes from word, just kind of this, the word spoken without image. And then you get this kind of dark imagery at night uh, of the torch. Right. No, and then you get this during the day, human to human style encounter. Right. Oh, that's a good. That's a that's so, a helpful and, reminder. And this is, you know, this is how we, as we read the narrative, learn more and more about who God is. 
right? At this point in the narrative, you know, we know very little about the Lord. If we if we are actually staying with the narrative and not reading yes. the New Testament into it. Yes. So we are still learning, what, you know, who God is and what kind of God he is, just like Abraham is learning that. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's interesting here is, you know, the Lord appeared, but then it's three people. Mm-hmm. But yet when Abraham is talking to the Lord or the three people, he uses plural, he uses singular, he uses yeah. you plural, he uses you singular. So it's, you know, with the narrative, it's all this, um, you know, the narrative is creating a picture of the Lord and yet it's still very hidden. He's still very hidden and not clearly described so that everybody would know. Yeah. So hidden in hidden in plain sight, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Be- because, you know, if there are three and, you know, of course, some Christian uh, late, um, what is it like middle ages, Christian interpreters would consider that and say, Oh, that's definitely the Trinity. We can see it, but we really can't at this point. Yeah, no. And if it is a Trinity, if it is the Trinity, um, all three are appeared, then we know that only two would go on right. to uh, talk to Lot. So yeah. who got lost on the way? Yeah. You know? Yeah, so well, I mean, what, whatever, whatever it's imaging, it remains, it remains, uh, you know, an enigma, you know, right. tied up in a mystery, right, or hidden in plain sight, which is actually the very nature of revelation, right? I mean, if, if God is discoverable by our own ingenuity, then revelation would not be absolutely, but only relatively necessary. But if God is a, a mystery to us that can only be known by his revelation, then that means that by God's very nature to be revealed is itself to be manifested under some kind of form other than is natural to him. And so to be revealed is always to also be mysterious. It's not like, Oh, we didn't know who God is. And now we do. It's like the more God shows, the more mysterious it gets because there's this strange kind of plural and singular and this, this dynamic of, promising the future, um, but with not absolute clarity of what that's going to look like. And, and right. yeah. And then the, the two men that go off and the one that stays behind to dialogue with, with right. Abraham and all that, it just, every, every new bit, you know, every new, uh, every new uh, mystery unveiled is a new, you know, mystery veiled, right. Just kind of all, you know, now I'm, now I'm being too playful with my words, but you get the point, the hit the hidden right. in plain yeah, sight. Yeah. Hidden in plain sight is the experience for, for Abraham. I mean, even the notion of like, you're going to have a child, you know, uh, with your wife, Sarah, it's like, uh, it's not like everything else is clear. And then that's the strange thing. That's how we tend, we can fall into that when you're religious and you're thinking, oh yeah, we hear from God all the time, blah, blah, blah. And you can get caught up in this kind of easy God talk. So then the hard thing is how do I believe this promise? But it's also like, who am I even talking to, right? Like, it's, it's, right. It's, <laughs> so uh, that's 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 helpful to me to, to see those right. layers. Let's take a quick break and come back and and dig in a little deeper. Welcome back to Fresh Text. 
we're back, and I'm here with my guest, uh, Larisa Levicheva, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Uh, and we're glancing at the larger context, but that's kind of our focus is this encounter in the middle of the day uh, between Adonai in this kind of group of uh, three, and this promise and this conversation and the laughter uh, that, that, that Sarah gets busted for doing. Um, so this is a laughing that can be a kind of a, a scoffing kind of laughter. Yes. I mean, that's in the range of meaning, like kind of a, a disbelief as it were, right. A incredulity, right. incredulous right. laughter almost. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. As opposed to say like a joyous laughter, right. Which might. Uh, Correct. Yes. Yeah. Is, is a joyous laughter also, in the range of the meaning or is there, would there be a different word for that? Sorry to put you on the spot with a word study. No, it's, right. it's the same. It's the same word. So either here. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it could so come out a making a joke. Like, yeah. But I say that only because that, that introduced another lay of irony is laughing would also be a fitting uh, as good news. I'm not saying that's where she's at, but right. you could almost say that ironically a laughter of joy is is sort of almost hiddenly manifest in her. I mean, she's not for her. It's just like, how, how am I going to do that? You know? Right. Yeah. And it's but so it's, striking. Verse, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Uh, what I was going to say is that the the narrator makes it make it so clear that it's impossible, right? Yeah. And even Sarah's laughter make it um, quite understandable, right? Like, yeah, of course, of course, it's impossible. Like, what is this? Yeah. Right? And then the, the, you know, the stronger the doubt, the more meaningful than the miracle that happens. So it is as if the narrator purposefully tells us, creates this picture of complete impossibility. That is not possible at all. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the Lord says, well, is it too impossible for me? So again, you know, I think if we remember that Abraham is still learning about the God that he has chosen to follow. Mm-hmm. Up to this point, he's seen God um, being with him in whatever place he goes, like you know, yeah. Egypt or traveling in Canaan. So he knows that it's. This God is more than just being geographically bound, as was the uh, understanding in ancient times. But um, he also knows that this God will protect him. He's seen it done, and as far as Sarah is concerned as well, right? But it's uh, up to this point, it's still this God who is quite far, right? He doesn't, mm-hmm. he doesn't. Um, see him come to him personally. There's no this, you know, personal encounter, so to speak. So God is coming, you know, closer and closer to Abraham, right? Yeah. He, he keeps saying, like, I will give you a son, but, you know, it's 25 years later. Yeah. So it's like, well, I'm already past all those promises. And yet God steps into his life. Yeah, and his initial promise yeah. back in twelve was to have a, a child or inf- uh, a child from your own loins, 
Right. You know, as opposed to Lot, who is kind of the obvious, you know, the default. Uh, right. And and then the Ishmael plan <laughs> um, was a child from his own loins. And so there's an emerging clarification, both of the character of God and of the the nature of the and the character of the promise. Right. Right. The, the, the content, I should say, of the promise, because even the content of the promise seems to be fulfilled in Ishmael's birth. Right. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And hence why the the new revelation in chapter 15 that introduces a kind of new clarification of this is going to be through you and Sarah by 17 right. with the circumcision. It gets so it's getting more and more the, the pattern you were sharing earlier about the, the, the character and personality of God getting clearer right. while while actually maybe the nature of God becoming more unclear, if I can make a nature character distinction, right? While at the same time, the promise, the content, of the promise is getting, you know, more and more specific. Um, right. mm-hmm. But as the promise gets more specific, it becomes more and more impossible. Right. right. <laughs> yes. Cause I mean, a vague promise, you know, I'll always be with you. Who knows? <laughs> it's kinda, right. Like, I mean, how much do we do this? I mean, this is anticipating even it. Our application is like, how often do we actually sometimes even prefer, well, maybe different personalities are different, oriented different ways, but some of us prefer to, to a vague promise so that, you know, when it comes almost whatever, I mean, how often do we like even pray in a way that makes it so generic that whatever happens, we'd be like, yeah, okay. It happened. Right. Cause we don't want to risk the disappointment perhaps. Um, or we're, um, or deep down inside, we really do wonder if we can count on God or maybe deep down inside, we know that maybe we're not actually praying according to his promise, but only praying according to our own, you know, pleasure and desire. Whereas like, this is, this is all the initiative is all from God here. The specificity is coming from God, right? Which then invites, in turn, as the story goes on, as Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah and gets very specific back, right? How about fifty? Right. Ah, maybe forty, right? <laughs> um, so the specificity, of the promise, then invites a specificity of of prayer in response. Right. Um, it's like, oh, you're going to get more specific or I'll get more. <laughs> How about just five? <laughs> like, kind of really keeps bringing it down. And, uh, right. and you know, the promise does come true uh, a year later and they name him after the laughter, right? <laughs> right. Um, yep. Isak. And it's, Isak actually means he laughs, right? It's not mm-hmm. the noun laughter. But it's, it's not clear who laughs, right? It's yeah. not Sarah because it's he. That's laughs. right. So is it God? Is it Abraham? <laughs> God gets is it the, the last child laugh. himself, right? <laughs> so this kind of still ambiguous, right? Yeah. And then all the more striking, and, and this is a text for a, a, a different week. Um, okay. the, uh, the Then that same word for laughter is, uh, is what Ishmael is caught doing. At the uh, the little party that, uh, that that leads to the banishment, but right, that's true. So there's this recurring this recurring motif of this laughter that can be scoffing, but can also be joyous. I I would so, hope that yeah. his name, but also sad. I mean, it's it's because uh, I mean you could say that there's a little. I I don't want to. 
I don't want to impugn the character of God, but then again, it's a narrative character. So let's see how it plays out. I mean, the right. notion that God laughs at Sarah's laughter is uh, <laughs> quite right. plausible, yeah. right? Right. Well, see who laughs last. Right? Yeah, right? I I think that's at least one layer of it. Uh, right. Not cruel, but but there is a kind of... Uh, so I just some, I saw something. This is tracking back, but... Sure. Um, and I want to see if I missed something, but I'm, I'm trying to apply your, uh, your suggestion here and kind of notice when it's, when the narrator uses a word versus when characters use a word. So, and I only noticed it because you were just quoting from memory when you said from verse 14 is anything too difficult for me, you said, and I just happened to glance. I was looking at it. Especially because I, I was thinking of the, oh, the, yeah. the parallel in Luke one, right? It, right nothing right. will be possible, right? With the Lord, right. and that's right, it's always right. nothing. And or with God, I think it says there. But here it's right. is anything too difficult for or with Adonai, right? Or the Tetragrammaton? Right. Uh, and I believe that's the first time a character in this chapter says the divine name. Am I correct? Right. Or did I miss an earlier one? No. No, it starts, the chapter starts with that word when, you know, the Lord appears. Oh, and it, it's repeated, but it's only the narrator saying it, I think. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, is that, that helps to even me, for me to even catch the, the fear in verse 15, right? Because in that yeah. moment, there's the, I mean, the. It's easy for me to only again because I'm thinking about the promise and forgetting to pay attention to the the personality of God that's being unveiled. So I think, oh, is anything dif- too difficult for the Lord? Right, but it, it could also be like, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Right, kind of a right. like, do you don't you realize who you're talking to? I'm not just some random stranger who you fed. And then I gave you some weird prophetic utterance because up to that moment, that would be for the characters in the story, not for us. Cause it's been saying Yahweh over and over and over again, but, right. but for the characters in the story, it, it could have just been, you know, okay, these are some soothsayers who know about the future. Maybe God sent them, but you're right. Like the, right. the, 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 the reveal that it's the Lord he's speaking with comes in verse 14, I think. Um, right. Because up to this point, we never read about Abraham introducing his wife to the strangers. Mm-hmm. Right. So the whole point that Abraham does not know who he's, who he's talking to. Yet mm-hmm. uh, the Lord knows everything. He knows about his wife. He knows his wife's situation. So that's through this conversation, the characters understanding better and better who yeah. they're dealing with. Yeah. And that, that, yeah. That fits a kind of, and there's a kind of funny, there's a riffing off that, if I may, the, mm-hmm. there's a kind of like cultural context, a simultaneous kind of cultural and theological sort of observation worth bringing up in, in connection with that, if I may, where the not only mystery, but even unlikelihood that this is the Lord visiting him is maybe harder for us to grasp because of the, our lack of kind of hospitality ritualism, not all of, of, of more traditional societies in general that you could experience now, but more so in the ancient world and especially in the, in the Middle Eastern world. And especially when you're living out in the desert, 
right. where hospitality is a life or death thing. And these, these rituals and, and, and standards and expectations are, yeah, they are matters of life and death. They're not going to just go off to the next. You may be the only stop today or for two days. So your obligation to uh, a sojourner passing by is, 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 is basic humanity. I mean, it's basic human rights kind of stuff here. Right. And, and I mentioned that to say that, like, as you said, if we forget as modern readers of this narrating technique to know that just because the narrator says it doesn't mean the characters do. So we, re- we reminded ourselves of that. But if, if, we, if we're not reminding ourselves of that, it's very easy to assume that he's having some recognition that this is a special moment rather than just three random dudes walking by because we're not as used to welcoming random people into our house. We're actually raised to not do it. Don't trust strangers. Don't take candy from strangers, all that kind of stuff. Right. Whereas relying on strangers is kind of this central ethical reality in an ancient desert culture. And I I bring that up because it does make a theological point because it is about, he doesn't have to know that he's welcoming God. Precisely. That's the point in a way. And, and, God has visited with him and all those are being narrated. And it seems like it was just one chapter ago. But of course, as you said, this is 25 right. years and he's only visited him a couple times. So it's not like right. walking and talking with God all the time. I think that's the, that's a false image we can have of Abraham is he's just hanging out with God all the time. Um, uh, you kind of have to wait till Moses really to get that kind of a picture of someone right. who's in kind of constant contact. Um, right. And even that stretched over 40 years. So <laughs> um, I don't know if any of that, if any of that resonates or if you want to confirm, clarify, or correct any of no, the no, no, rants. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's good. Um, what I was also thinking is, you know, speaking about uh, Hebrew narrative and how there has to be connections that will, you know, help you remember the story, right, as you go through. Um, it starts with uh, the Lord coming to Abraham in the heat of the day, right, which may remind you, Yes. Of uh, the garden where yes. the Lord comes to, a, uh, sorry, to Adam, you know, in the cool of the night. So basically God comes at any point, right? But he comes to people. He's, he's relational. Then, uh, you know, again, uh, the Lord asks, so where is your wife, Sarah? Which reminds you yes. of Cain, right? And where is your brother? So it's, I mean, these are these are hooks that help you remember the story yeah. as you listen to it, and then as you narrate it. Now, this is of course a very different response than Abra- that Abraham does as opposed to Cain. But God is asking same questions, right? He's he's constant in his his sorry he's consistent in mm-hmm. his behavior and in his dealing with the people, right? He comes to you. He asks you. Pretty much the same questions. Yes. So it's it's quite interesting to to think about the narrative as you know revealing more and more information, yet using the same devices, so to speak, right? Literary devices that help you go through that. Yeah. Oh um, man, the, the heat of the day thing—that's really striking. Both as it looks back to. The cool, the cool of the day, I believe, right. is the term in, in Genesis 3, having, yeah, of course, so. been the one who created night and day right. and named right. them accordingly. And then I'm trying to remember if the, the weird one with the, with the floating torch, uh, 
Yeah. As the sun was going down. So we've had an encounter between God and Abraham where he's used the term, uh, you know, in chapter 15, I am, you know, Tetragrammaton who brought you out from Ur, right? right? Which is even the same grammar for, for first hearers of this. They'd have heard this more. Right. In in the Exodus version, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right, it's that form, right. but in an, in the kind of Abrahamic uh, setting. So he he's he's heard this name of God before, and and this and as the sun was going down, a deep fell sleep fell, and a dreadful and great darkness. So he had this kind of dark encounter with God in fifteen. So the contrast is not just day, but the heat of the day. So it's almost like mm-hmm. it's as opposite as you could get. Right, high noon, right. as it were. Right. Which is, I, I presume, the little I do know about the desert, this would be when, you know, those who come from warmer climes know that even even if you're not in a desert context, you, you work in the morning and then you, you siesta in the afternoon right. and then you work a little more in the evening, right? That's that rhythm right. that I so prefer to the attempt to be productive in the afternoon. It's just, <laughs> just this awful invention of Teutonic societies. But anyway, um, right. <laughs> So I presume that this would be the kind of like the time to stop if you were traveling. Is that, right. am I, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that that's not rooted. You know, the world more than I do. So if, if, I'm, right. if my guess is wrong, clarify, but. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be traveling in the desert, you know? Yeah. In the heat of the day. The noon hours, right? Have you ever seen a, have you ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, that movie? No, sorry. Okay. So step one. We should watch Lawrence Ravey together. It's really great. I mean, it's really, especially with a big TV. It's really, really, really amazing. Um, okay. First point. Uh, the, uh, um, actually I got to, I got to see it in a theater one time, you know, so on like a, like in an old fashioned theater that showed old movies in the summer, you know, it was just breathtaking, you know, all the desert scenes in the star Wars movies. That's, those are riffing off of the Lawrence of Arabia tradition. Anyway, sorry to do movie, movie geek stuff, but I bring it up because there's a there's a period where they're traveling where they actually have to travel at night and sleep during the day because it's just so it's such a bad part of the desert and and that's all near not that far that the whole movie takes place not that far from where this stuff's going on mm-hmm. so you really do get a little bit of a picture of the a little faint picture of some of these and the hospitality stuff's real central in that movie but anyway I mentioned that just to say like this this notion of the cool of the day, it's really great because like you said, it makes a connection, but it works just in the story. Like right. at first, mm-hmm. heat of the day, oh, well, that would be obviously when you would be entertaining guests, right? Who are traveling through and need to take a break during the hottest part of the day. So it kind of, and, and great storytelling works this way. It's like, I, I, I always, like the, the best, you know, like, like re, you know, like the really good, like, uh, Pixar movies, you know, that like the kids <laughs> like, but then the adults are right. catching other jokes, you could almost say that you could listen to this on two levels. You could just hear, oh, heat of the day, obvious. That's a time for entertaining a guest. But then uh, deeper level is, ooh, that's actually making a connection back. And for those who've already heard the story many times, they know it's a connection forward because of what's going to happen at night down in Sodom. Right. right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the R-rated uh, violation of hospitality. Uh, right. you know, that takes place in the next chapter. So, right. 
anyway, uh, that was just a riff. I don't know if you want to say anything about it or say something else. But <laughs> no, just you know, continuing with the hospitality issue, right? Uh, we already know that Abraham is old, right? Very old, mm-hmm. and yet he runs towards these people. Ooh, nice, good eye. I didn't miss that. I missed that. Right? It's a. Uh, he looked at uh, so verse two. He looked up and suddenly saw three men. And as he saw them, he ran from his wow. entrance to greet them and bowed deeply. Now, he has no idea who he's talking to, right? Who he's seeing. It's not like he's doing it so that in the end he'll get a promise, right? Yep. He has no idea, but yet, even though he's old, the age, and you know, age is important in that culture, right? Yeah. He's not waiting for them to come to him. Which would be honor-wise appropriate. They're the right. guest. He's he's an elder. But yeah. you know, he's going out of his way to show hospitality because he has been shown hospitality in Egypt. He's been shown hospitality throughout the places he traveled. So he's doing, um, you know, he's paying it forward, right? It's He's doing <laughs> what needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, First John four, right? How, how dare you say that you love God but don't love your brother? Because right. who? How can you love God who you don't see, right? Who right. can't be seen? Yeah. yeah. But you don't love your brother who you can see, and and then taking that to the next level, not only brother but neighbor yeah. and even enemy, right? right? And this and this, you know, again in the desert, you don't know if this person is a danger, and in fact, they could be an enemy. There's all these. I've studied this a little bit and you probably know way more about this, but there's all these traditions around how enemies, how the, the rules of hospitality apply even to your worst enemy. Right. You would never attack the other person, even if you would on a battlefield later that day, like, right. <laughs> right? But the, in the hospitality ritual trumps even that enmity. Right. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, uh, Abraham is an, ex- is so exuberant in his hospitality, right? He, you know, he says just a little bit of water, you know, some, you know, some refreshments for you before you move on. And yet he gets, um, yes, he gets <laughs> a whole cap. I know. For three people. And he's not eating himself. Sammy, no. Nobody's eating. Just these three people. Right. Whole cap. We know later on. For example, you know, with the Exodus story, right? They need to yeah, get a you, lamb, which is significantly yeah. smaller, and share it between families because it's so much meat, right? And yet oh. he gets his fast calf. She, uh, he asks Sarah to make some cakes, and yet uses so much flour. Like, as I was reading about it, it said that um, Elijah, right, when he's calling down the fire, and uh, the amount of water, if you measure it the same way they measured um, mm-hmm. wheat, it will only be two, two <laughs> whatever measurements of that. Wow. He, she uses three. It, <laughs> they definitely made way more food yep. than these three people could eat. And he or said hurry to her, right? Food. Quick. Yeah. So quick and a lot, right? right. And they don't go together. No, that's true. That's true. They have to sit there and wait. And Abraham is not sitting down. He's standing there as a waiter and as a host, right? Stood. Yes. I missed that. Yes. Stood by them. You know, he's old and yet. 
Hospitality trumps that. Right? And it'd be totally appropriate to invite them into the tent, have them sit at his table, have Abraham kind of sit at the head, as it were. Right. Um, now, these are also, I mean, not not to undermine Abram, Abraham's uh, virtue here, but this is also the smart play, if there's any risk here, is to keep him out at the tree <laughs> and not bring him into the tent. Right? But this is just, these are just... And it, that's not a conscious thing. I'm not saying he's like, oh, these guys are dangerous. I mean, there, there is a fittingness to say, no, here, we'll host you here. But hosting them, you know, just over and above. And like you said, standing by them. But I, I do, I bring that up to say that it mentions that she's afraid. But I wonder if he's a little afraid too. If there's yeah. a spook, there, there's some, there's something in him. I mean, I don't want to over-psychologize beyond right. what's there. But paying attention to the details that... You could, I could use the word anxious to describe his behavior here, right? And we can use the word anxious in the positive sense of like, oh, I'm anxious to help, I'm right? Like desiring to, and I think that's true. But then there's also the other layer of kind of like, as, as we would say, a later expression, you're like, something struck the fear of God in this guy, right? And you right. kind of like sense this, not that he knows it's God. I don't think that's the case. I think that's to miss the point of the story. I think it's a surprise, but rather that, something's already stirring in him beyond just mere minimal hospitality or even maximal hospitality. It's kind of like something's happening. Right. And, and I, I like, I think that's helpful because it, 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 it allows that Abraham is modeling for us a kind of awareness and attentiveness to the stranger who right. could in fact be something important and to have a little bit of the fear of God in my encounter with every human being. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Not in order to get some goodie or promise out of it, but precisely because it's the right way to to encounter those who come by. I was going to say that um, Abraham, like at the very end, you know, when uh, in 13 and on, mm-hmm. the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? When I return to you about this time, Sarah will have a son, right? So... God is talking to Abraham about what Sarah did, right? Mm-hmm. But he's not. There's he doesn't respond. He doesn't yeah. say, "Well, it's her. It's not me." Or I'll talk to her and make sure she doesn't laugh anymore. Like you know, he just he's silent. Interesting. Is that a so, contrast with the Eden story that we already mentioned? A contrast, right? Could be. Right? Quick, you know how quick Adam's like. Well, the woman you gave me, she right? Like the right. kind of yeah. defensiveness. That I think is as much the sin as the the, the fruit, which may right. you know is may just be innocent confusion and a screw up, but they make it worse with all their excuse making. Right, you know. Yeah. Um, and Sarah actually does that, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> she laughs and said, "No, I didn't." Right. So she already laughs, um, kind of at the word of God, right, at the promise. He does. She doesn't believe it, but then she covers up this unbelief uh-huh. with a lie. But Abraham is silent, so we, we don't know why. Because when he comes back, when the Lord comes back, he comes back to Sarah, right, in 21. So, the again, the Abraham does the minimal. So it's now between God and Sarah. Yeah. So God, you know, God promises to come back to Abraham at the same time, but he actually comes back to Sarah. Yes. Oh, that's good. That's good. And this is classic Abraham. If, if So after having praised his hospitality and 
There's the upside of the silent series, not making excuses. I obviously went there, you know, oh, he's a, he's a good guy, right? And you're also helping us see that there's a recurring pattern in Abraham of a kind of like indecisiveness and a kind of like uh, what the medievals would call sloth, which doesn't mean you're just laying around, but that you're just kind of like, you're just kind of blown in the wind by everybody else's <laughs> will, you know, and which, you know, makes him a good instrument for the Lord uh, for sometimes, but also kind of, you know, it's almost kind of like, you know, he could have said something. I don't know. Maybe he should have said something. I don't know. What do you think? Right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, you know, Abraham's behavior towards Sarah, right. is quite telling. Yes. God, God gives him a promise that he will have a child with Sarah. Next thing he travels somewhere and says, this is my sister here. Yep. Take her. Right. And even in uh, chapter 20, the same thing happens, right? He again says, that's my sister. And he'll do anything to get out of hot water, right? That's what I'm saying with even with the original hospitality, you know, he's kind of just in case these guys are going to kill me, right? Like, like he seems to be a a, a man of fear. He, He, he has a kind of a survival instinct that again, befits the desert, uh, befits the hard life he's had but also is a little excessive and a, and a warning to us. And you're right. The really, the end of the story, you almost get the Lord kind of basically like taking a break from Abraham and saying, and speaking directly to Sarah, right? right. Cause he starts with, why did she laugh to him? But almost when she denies it, you know, almost can see the, the Lord's image right. or angel or whatever this object is right. turning her to her and saying, no, you did. You know, and then the men take off, but the Lord stays behind and they have their dialogue. So he does end up dialoguing with Abraham. But like you said, that's almost planting the seed for God's visitation to Sarah directly because she hadn't had a direct encounter with God yet. Is that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. Hagar has, but (laughs) out in the, out in the, in her, uh, when she ran off back in 16, but. Right. Yeah. So. We know that God has promised Abraham that he will have a son. We don't know if he shared that with Sarah. Right. right? And how much she believed it. Or So now Sarah actually gets a direct word. Wow. Right. From God. Yeah. Um, was, was, the, was the treatment she received from Abraham. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no wonder that she doubts. Yes. Oh, heavens. His yes. abilities. But, but it's quite interesting. In First Peter, right? He, uh, Peter brings Sarah's example as an example of faithfulness and perseverance despite the circumstances. Yeah. Right? Not Abraham, but Sarah, because uh, as a woman, uh, her husband is doing whatever he wants, and yet she has to rely on God to continue with the promise, right? She uh, mm-hmm. received, especially in uh, chapter 18, right? When he, you know, again, tries to protect himself at her expense. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, well, with so, that, I thinking mean, about how to apply it, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. Here with my guest, Tarisa Levicheva, one of my regulars. Love having... Uh, Laura on, and um, we're looking at Genesis uh, chapter, what was it? I 
turns and looks at something up. 18. There it is. 18 verses 1 through 5. We've already been dropping some hints along the way, but let's talk sermons. Let's say we're uh, we're prepping a sermon or a teaching on this. Uh, where, where would you run with it? How, what would be your, your focus or your form? Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you have in mind? I think hospitality is such a dominant theme here. Mm-hmm. So talking about the importance of hospitality and what it means today. And, and I think this is where every person who preaches on that, right, will get very creative and particular, right? Mm-hmm. Because offering hospitality in different contexts may mean different yeah. things. I uh, recently taught a, a class on missiology at the seminary, and one of the components of the class was for students to practice hospitality hmm. for eight weeks. And hmm. they ha- they have to come up with the context, and they okay. have to – but they have to be active. They have to do something. So some students, you know, were thinking about studying new ministries in different parts of town, for example, right? And some were thinking about being more intentional in developing a friendship with a non-Christian, uh, but just being a friend, right? So it's it's all these different ways of how we can engage in that, but how necessary it is for our lives. So- yeah, this is this is one of these tricky things <laughs> where where the understanding the. In, in preaching and in application to our lives, there's kind of like two extremes. One would be a kind of such a radical kind of relativizing of culture such that, yeah. oh, hospitality was a thing there. So what's right. the kind of abstract principle we can pull out? And then it just looks so different that it really – are we really applying scripture at that point? That would be like one extreme. And then the other kind of extreme is to basically just say modern, atomistic, suburban culture – is just evil and wrong because it doesn't have these values really <laughs> like right. and that and that extreme isn't going to work and even if it was true it's like just not going to work as a sermon <laughs> but it, i don't think it is actually true i think hospitality can take a wide variety of forms right and we are invited to find out what it looks like to be faithful to christ even in a culture whose norms are contradictory to our uh, practices, as was the New Testament church, you know, from the beginning. So there's kind of some place in the middle where we can actually recognize, because I think there's a place to kind of say, yeah, hospitality is harder for some of us because we've had a culture that set up boundaries uh, to hospitality. And I think it's important even in preaching to even name that, to say, this is a harder thing to be faithful to. Um, In fact, the hospitality here more was... Actually, there's the character of his hospitality, but just the very fact of it was actually pretty normal in his time, and not 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 a given, not an absolute, but but it was it was a pattern that was known. You know, it wasn't totally out of the blue. You can tell there's already stress being laid on that hospitality as you get into the New Testament, and you get in a more persecuted kind of context, like in Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse two, where it says. Be sure to practice hospitality to strangers because some have entertained angels unawares, probably referencing this passage um, as rabbinic exegesis would regard any manifestation of the Lord as, as an angel. So like th- this kind of – so it's not like even the scriptural – the canonical context of this text is even 
there is a place of even recognizing that you may be tempted to give up on hospitality because of the dangers that it uh, supplies or the inconvenience. And I think, I don't know, I don't know where that comes in the sermon, but at some point there needs to be at least some acknowledgement because then when you get around to getting creative about practicing hospitality, it's not going to be merely a sort of, oh, well, whatever your mind thinks of it, entertaining, you know, like, oh, well, this is what I like to do. I like to have my friends over for dinner. Well, that's not hospitality to strangers. Right. That's just hanging out with my friends, which is also important and good, but not, that's not what we're, what this text is manifesting. Right. Um, now, I think in, uh, in this culture, it's more about spending time, right? Time is such a high commodity, uh, right? We never have enough time. I think that's a really good insight. But that's the thing we we treat of as precious, yeah. Right. We never have enough time. We're so busy. There's so many things to do. They're all good things. It's, you know, it's not a combination Mm. of anything, right? That we do not have time to Hmm. suddenly, you know, go, I don't know, to Starbucks and meet somebody and talk and sit and rather than, well, I have 15 minutes or I have 30 minutes or I have an hour. And what if it goes longer, right? So it's just probably uh, remember that, Time is something that God gives us. It's, it's still his gift, and we need to be good stewards of that. Right? That's a good insight because you see here the, 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 the slaughtering of the calf, which, I mean, and this is – I do not think that this is a neutral fact of our society, but I won't get into it today. We have calves to spare, right? I mean, we right. have that's meat true. out the ears. Oh. I don't think that's a neutral fact, but I'll leave it neutral for today. So for us to apply, we have to ask what's precious to us, right? right. And what's and you're right. And the, the thought of time as this kind of precious commodity, again, I think it's a problem that we think of time as a commodity, but you got to start where people are at, right? And this is right. where we're at. This is the world we live in. Just as, Mo, as, just as Abraham and Sarah were out in the desert and old, uh, we are who we are. Uh, and so um, right. we start with that. And I think I think you're – you're very, very right to think of time as really the key. I'd, I'd, I'd even be willing to play a little bit to say maybe the kind of com- the combination of time and energy. I think those maybe are related, yeah. right? We, we think we don't have time. And by that, we mean we went so wall to wall all day. The last thing we want to do now right. is, is entertain a stranger in the evening, right? Uh, yeah. So, because of course, it's funny how we talk about how much time we have, but we all literally always have the exact same amount of time. <laughs> Every day is exactly the same length for us and for Abraham. Only Joshua and his men experienced a longer day. Every single day is, you know, um, and right. and I and I, I don't mean that to criticize the time thing, but to link up how our relationship to time is linked to our sense of energy and what we have to spare and to offer. And precisely because we think of time as precious, I think you're dead right to, to give a whole, you know, a full hour of undivided attention with the phone off with a person, whether it's old friend, new friend, total stranger to really give that attentiveness and encounter, you know, is to, is to slay a, you know, a tender and good calf, right. right? And to fill up three sayas of fine flour. And that'd be a fun way to do it. Easy in a sermon is you could, we could identify the thing. We could do time. Right. Uh, yeah. And then you could identify another thing as the, this is being cute now, but you know, like the calf and then the flower to say, 
what's the large measure? What's the other thing that's precious just to you in our culture in general, it's time, but maybe for you, it's this or that or the other. Right. And uh, I think that's, I think that's a really good insight. I think that'd make for a good sermon to really zoom in on, on hospitality. I wonder how, so I am with you that using this as a proof text for the Trinity is a terrible idea. Um, because it doesn't give us nearly enough information to actually help. And furthermore, so that's picking it up from the, well, I'll I'll stay with that. And I think it may actually obscure the text, right? And what it's trying to do. So that's picking up from the exegetical side. Quick, quick commentary. I'd also say it's a problematic text if you pick it up from the dogmatic side, because you clearly have a sort of subordination of the two, companions with the one. And so you actually end up having the talk Trinity you don't want anyway. Uh, so you want to be real careful, right? right. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if we think of it, th- there's a simple syllogism. This is a theophany. I believe the doctrine Trinity is true. Therefore, this was the Trinity, right? Like ontologically, that must be the case, right? If I believe it's true, something can be true, but not be clear. So the notion that this is a text that supports the Trinity, I think, is a misguided notion. But the sense of the triune God in community with us as one of the mysteries of this text, I think, is 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 not only appropriate, but actually fits the theme of hospitality. That's why I'm bringing it up here in our sermon conversation. Because it, one way of saying what the point of the doctrine of Trinity is that God is both a hospitable God to us and a God who relies on our hospitality, who visits with us. And the, 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 the word and spirit of God are, are the, the father's way of being in community with us. Right. And, and they are the roominess of God welcoming us into his life as well. So at a, at a thematic level, I think it actually is a very quote Trinitarian passage. Does that making sense? Or feel free to push back on me if you want. Again, thematically, not, not, not technically. It's not the technical doctrine of Trinity right. is not working here at all. It would, that point would work if there were six guys. The point right. still works. It doesn't need to be three. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think, I think it just talks about that God is like, even in this um, passage, you see that God is more than one. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is that idea of community. Mm-hmm. It, it probably spells spells out what that means later on. But from the beginning, right, mm-hmm. as um, as Abraham and then as the readers uh, are learning more and more about this God, they understand that he is one and yet he is more than one. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, Elohim, the, the name that's used for him, yep. for the Lord in um in uh, the Bible is plural. Yeah. Right. There yeah. are contexts where it's translated as gods mm-hmm. by right? talking about other gods. So I think, you know, the Hebrew itself even helps us understand that, you know, God is one and yet he's in community. Yeah. I, so, I think of, yeah, uh, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of at a thematic mm-hmm. level rather than at a, sort of speculative or philosophical or technical kind of level, which doesn't really belong right. in sermons anyway, I don't believe. Right. Um, uh, I, so I just, I thought I'd just kind of stick up for an alternative way of, of seeing the Trinity at play here again, more thematically and mysteriously as, and I think that could come into the sermon uh, on a, on a sermon on hospitality is to mention then that 
God came in the flesh in his son, Jesus, and he didn't, and was homeless. He says the fox has holes, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that he himself relied on the hospitality of others. And that we see most of the stories of Jesus are either on the road or uh, in other people's homes. Yeah. Go and get so, the donkey, right? right? Somebody's donkey. Right. And so this, at somebody's place. Yeah. And I think sometimes we think we're trying to be like Jesus when we practice hospitality. And what's really cool with this story located in that larger covenantal Christological and Trinitarian context is to be able to say, actually, we are welcoming Christ when we practice hospitality. I mean, it's, it's a famous line from rule of St. Benedict, just riffing off of these teachings throughout the scriptures that you, you are to welcome every stranger and especially the poor. Um, for they are as Christ to you in the monastery, which that is only said, the only other thing that's said is Christ to you in the monastery is the abbot. So the abbot at the top, as it were, and the poor stranger guest at the bottom, this is who Christ is in the community. Do you know what I mean? And I just bring that up to say that, I mean, hospitality has such this central practice precisely because this is how we welcome God, not just hoping maybe it's God who's visiting right. us, but it's, it's the doctrine of the image of God. It is always God visiting. Whenever right. a human being, whenever I welcome a human being into my life, I am welcoming God into my life. That's, that's just true. Yeah. That's ontologically true, whether I'm aware of it or not, and whether they are a morally despicable person or not, <laughs> and whether I convert them or not. Something right. spiritual is happening in hospitality by definition. The question of attitude matters, the tone with which we do it, our openness to what we're going to see. That's what, that's how it's going to make a difference for us. But object, objectively speaking, hospitality is spiritual, right? <laughs> whether yes. we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Sorry, well, I get worked I was, up. I excited, get excited about these things. It's <laughs> good. I was just thinking about another idea for a sermon. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Pitch it. It's uh, about um, the attitude of active waiting so to speak. Yes. I can think of a better word to I say. I love it. I love it. It's great. Because the God gives a promise, right? And it takes 25 years yeah. for Abraham to actually see it, right? And touch it. Um, so what kind of life does he have, right? What What's going on? How do you live? Mm-hmm. Was You know that God gave you a promise and you know that it's true. And yet it may take 25 years for it to to become a reality, right? But it doesn't mean that you're just sitting and waiting Mm. by the window whenever God appears. But you are actually living in such a way that God is working on you, right? It's a time, it's not just a time of doing nothing. It's a time of preparation. So that when when it does come true, you're ready to embrace it and to you know, live in its fullness, right? Because as, as we go through the story, we see that Isaac is born, right? And almost mm-hmm. the very next thing is that God asked Abraham to sacrifice. Oh, yes. Oh, right? Yeah. And yet Abraham does not ask any questions. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's because, well, first of all, it's quite natural in that culture to ask for a firstborn to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because he does know what kind of God he's serving. He yeah. he spent this so all of this time learning about God and living in relationship and you know messing up quite constantly, but then still coming back and you know living in um, 
in obedience. So when the time of testing comes, he's willing to do it, and yet he knows that God is better and um, has so much goodness that he would not. Yeah. So it's that he'll figure it I out. Think it's find a, a way. I think it's a very difficult. It's a very difficult uh, idea. Uh, you know about the delayed gratification, right? In the in the culture yeah. where we're so used to immediate mm-hmm. gratification, yeah. where the um, the maturity, spiritual maturity, right, of character usually does not is not taken into account. You know, and um, God called me. That means I tomorrow I have to go do it. Forgetting about the time of preparation and trials and whatever, or not. Right. Yeah. The twenty-five years between the promise and the fulfillment were not the easy ways. Uh, years, sorry, for Abraham and his family. No. Yeah. Right? All kinds of stressors. No, I think that's so, really good, and it even links with hospitality because then, you know, it, it, you could either have a sermon on hospitality that maybe makes a sideways glance at this point, or save this for a different different week on because right. we're going through Abraham for a couple of weeks here on the show. Right, but right. or or you could talk. You could make this the larger theme in the teaching on active waiting, right? Because active waiting, what does active waiting look like? Right. And it, it, it means trust, which you talked about. And, but it's also, you said something about being prepared, the the preparation, right? What, what, what transformation has to take place in me that I'm a ready vessel for when the promise is fulfilled. Right. And then third, it's a readiness to, to receive in the moment. A, a readiness to uh, respond to ways in which this may be fulfilled, which then is hospitality, right? So you could talk about – because here's a fun kind of thought experiment that doesn't need to be an exegetical assertion. It can merely be a thought experiment to help us get inside this text. Is to recognize how many times has Abraham welcomed a stranger? This is no way this is the first time. Not only was this common in their culture, but his behavior demonstrates that this guy knows how to entertain, right? Uh, <laughs> right? And so the thought of how many times did a couple of men stop by this tent? Right. Dozens? Hundreds? During those 25 years? He doesn't know which one's going to be the one he doesn't even know that any of them are going to be right. the moment. He wasn't told, by the way, I'll, I'll come in disguise as a guest. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's not, that has never been on his radar, even as a possibility. So that, right. so you could almost say something about faithful, like something about trust, something about readiness and preparedness, and then something about faithfulness in practicing hospitality, because you never know when God is going to show up. And in fact, you do know because God's always showing up in every person you encounter. Um, uh, which one is going to be fulfilling a promise for you versus fulfilling one for them? That's what you don't know. But you know that God is always at work in every moment of hospitality. Right. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for that sermon idea and the first one and all the ideas through this is for spending so much time. I just looked at the time and we went super long and I'm sure my editors are going to be super I don't annoyed. Well, I was just... Well, we and you know we we had some technical difficulties and, and so I wasn't I kind of lost track of time, uh, but uh, I had a blast. I hope you did. I hope our listeners oh, had yes, some fun yes. too. Thank good, you. good. Yep. 
So we'll see our we'll see if uh, we'll see if the producers uh, cut it down to a normal hour if they just run it as an extra long. That'll, I'll leave them to decide that. Uh, I trust their editorial judgment. Speaking of which, uh, thank you so much to Todd and Eric and all their editorial work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks again to Larissa for uh, spending uh, time with us. Thanks to all our listeners uh, for chiming in. We appreciate you so much. Um, and uh, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye bye. Goodbye. Hey,